Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. I hope the new week has started well for you. Uh, We spent the weekend in Dunedin so we could watch the rugby test there on Saturday afternoon. Uh, We bought membership at the stadium there this season, so we watched the games in comfort from allocated seats close to a member's lounge where you can buy drinks and food. And as I was lapping it up on Saturday afternoon, I was reflecting on the first time I ever watched a rugby test in Dunedin. It was 1965. I was 11 years old and the All Blacks were playing the Springboks at the old Carisbrook ground. My dad and myself went. My mum and my sister didn't go because, well, women didn't go to rugby in those days. You didn't buy tickets in advance either. You queued up, you paid a few shillings to go through the turnstiles, and then you stood on the cinder-covered terraces, which had a few steel barriers to lean on. They never seemed to shut the gates in those days. All those who wanted in could go in as long as they paid, and everybody could afford it too. I remember weaseling my way down to the fence at ground level and had as good a view as a schoolboy could want as the All Blacks won that match 13 to nil. Ron Rangi scored two tries. Funny thing is, I can still remember the scores of all four tests in that series, but I couldn't tell you what the score was the last time the All Blacks played South Africa a few weeks ago, except that we won. Anyway, in 1965, we watched the game and then we went home, like most people did, back to where we lived in Invercargill. I guess a few men went to the nearby pubs, but as they closed at 6 o'clock back then, and seeing how the game didn't finish till 4.30, uh, there wasn't much time to have a beer afterwards. And you certainly couldn't drink at the game unless you brought your own. Compare that to now. It seems the whole experience is based around eating and drinking before, during and after. And even though the game finished at around 4.30 again, the bar in the members' lounge uh, didn't close till 8 o'clock. And not that we stayed until then, I might add. But those two experiences, 58 years apart, are in many respects a remarkable reflection of how much this country has changed in my lifetime. From an innocent and casual but puritanical society, especially about alcohol, uh, but one which was financially accessible for everyone, to a society which is highly organised and technical and exclusive, where you have to buy your seats for the big games well in advance at a high price, and where drinks are freely available all around the ground at prices quite a lot higher than, say, at the local RSA. Tickets certainly don't cost the equivalent of a few shillings anymore. If it cost my dad five shillings for him and two shillings for me to get into Carisbrook back in 1965, that's the inflation-adjusted equivalent of $10 for him and $4 for me in 2023. Uh, There is no children's pricing these days. The cheapest ticket for the Dunedin Stadium on Saturday was at least $100. Let's just say a sports event, especially an All Blacks test, is a very different experience to what it used to be, and it is not as accessible and available to everybody anymore the way it used to be. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. 
Reality Check Radio. Does Labour really think they'll get extra votes in the election by promising a second harbour crossing in Auckland sometime next decade, or maybe the one after? Why even bother to make these sort of announcements? If this government haven't made up their mind to start building things at any stage in the last six years, why would we trust them to start building anything in the next six? There is this number of $44 billion picked out of thin air as a possible cost of the project. Really? I mean, nothing in this country has ever cost that much. We've known for years that a second crossing of the Waitamata Harbour is necessary, but I'm with Wayne Brown on this. The Auckland mayor is asking quite why we have to wait until 2029 before they start building it. Will it really take six years to design? Oh, that's right, they'll have to get resource consents and make sure that no little birds will have their natural habitat upset by the construction and iwi will have to give their permission for the disturbing of the sea floor and blah, 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 blah. Frankly, this country was really fortunate that back in the 20th century we had no resource planning roadblocks to slow down important infrastructure construction. Where would we be if the Auckland Harbour Bridge had had to go through the RMA in 1958? But it wasn't big enough when it was was built and it was soon at capacity. So three lanes each way in these proposed two new tunnels sounds good now, but will they be enough in 2040 when they might be operating? And let's not worry about a separate rail tunnel. If you want attractive public transport options, make sure there's plenty of room for buses in the road tunnels. Buses are a far more flexible form of public transport. They can go anywhere. There are roads. This country has plenty of roads already, but it needs a whole lot more. The Greens, of course, are screaming over this proposal, but they really need some logical thinkers. New Zealanders, especially Aucklanders, don't do unreliable and inflexible public transport. Commuter rail will always be inflexible and expensive. Buses surely are where the future of public transport is for a population the size of Auckland's. They offer flexibility and versatility and go on the bridge and through the new tunnels. But remember, the humble passenger car has always been and will likely remain as Auckland's preferred method of travel. Good politicians should build infrastructure their voters want and not what politicians think they should have. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. You know, what the Greens did yesterday with the launch of their plan for state-funded dental care was to reprise a policy that Jim Anderton, the late Jim Anderton, was pushing in 2011 in the election campaign. Although the Greens' way of paying for it through a wealth tax is nothing short of bizarre. Let's be honest, though, the policy is never going to see the light of day because A, there won't be a Labour-Greens coalition after this election, and B, Labour are not interested in this initiative, which is not to say it's a bad idea. In fact, it's a very good idea. The reason dentistry was not part of the first Labour government's nationalised health system set up in 1938 
was because of self-interest from the dentists who wanted the ability to set their own fees and work independently. In Britain, dentistry, of course, is part of the NHS. The compromise here is state-funded dentistry up to the age of 17. If children have terrible teeth before this age, and thousands do, it's because their parents are neglecting their children's oral health and most likely letting them drink sugary fizzy drinks way too often. There's no real excuse apart from slackness and discipline. But adult dental care is absurdly expensive, and the idea that it should be state-funded is a worthwhile one, I reckon, but every time it comes into the political conversation, it's a minor party policy which National and Labour never show much interest in. Are the dentists still lobbying to be setting their own fees 85 years after Mickey Savage announced his social security scheme? Bad oral health leads to bad health in other parts of the body. Politicians say the cost of state-funded or subsidised dental care is prohibitive. The Greens say it would cost $1.2 billion. I doubt that's the case, to be honest, because Jim Anderton said back in 2011 it would cost a billion dollars. But even if it's $2 billion, that would still add only about 4% to the health budget. But if Labour and National haven't been enthusiastic about it since the Second World War, I just can't see them getting excited about it now. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. To some of your feedback, which is coming through inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057, uh, a couple of complimentary comments regarding the interview with Roger Small, the Democracy NZ candidate, whom we featured uh, on the show in the middle of last week. Hi, Peter. Great interview with Roger Small. Thank you. I look forward to sharing with others. And Jude writes, thank you for another professional, well-measured interview. You were able to inject some interesting personal responses with without scorn or sarcasm and allowed your interviewee to fill in the gaps. Well, thank you, Jude. But uh, this comment has come in via text and it's not signed, but it's regarding the Julian Batchelor interview, which we had had on, I think, the previous week. Peter, I think you could have been more balanced in your interview with Julian. You kind of made him out as a bad guy when he is trying his best to bring the truth of New Zealand's history. Uh, Well, thank you for that. I just thought that Julian uh, needed to be challenged just a little bit about the way that he conducted his meetings in particular, uh, trying to get the other side of the story presented uh, during the meetings. Uh, He doesn't want to do that. He believes that, uh, in fact, he can't find any Maori speakers to be able to be on the same platform as him. Now, Jan, Jan Boyson of Tauranga, who's a regular correspondent, he's written, Pete, you're on to it, mate. See my email below to another radio host regarding her story, how the poor old police can't cope. It's BS, he says. Uh, He's written to this other radio host saying, 
I am sick and tired of hearing how overworked the police are, how they're having to be mental health advocates, parents, caregivers, and the whole gambit. Nearly every time I go out somewhere on our roads, I see someone collecting a speeding ticket. I seriously doubt they are behaving in an unsafe manner, just exceeding the ridiculous speed limits by five kilometres per hour. What used to be 80 is now 60. What used to be 60 is now 50. Well, hello, were the roads so utterly dangerous when the limits were high that they had to be reduced? Uh, BS. This is a revenue-gathering exercise, and while the cops are telling sop stories about how overworked they are, they have plenty of resources to run around ticketing law-abiding citizens. Jan, you're absolutely correct. I'm not going to disagree with you on any day about that matter. There was a really interesting story in the paper over the weekend about judges and the extra perks they receive over and above their their quite tidy salaries. The reporter, Andrea Vance, wanted to see exactly what is in this so-called red book of judicial entitlement. But for some reason, she had her request denied by Crown Law, for no reason at all, really. The salaries themselves are not hard to find. For example, the Chief Justice is paid 578000 a year, a High Court judge, 487300 and a District Court judge, 370400 But it's what else they're entitled to, which is what was inquired after. Uh, we have a friend who is a District Court judge, and he cheerfully admits that he gets about 12 weeks holiday a year. And then there's the subsidised gold-plated superannuation scheme whereby the government puts in $7.50 for every dollar contributed by the judge. There is also talk of other perks like school uniforms for their kids if they have to shift towns and crown limos for judges at the Supreme Court and Court of Appeal. But we don't know exactly what judges get because of this veil of secrecy. What we do know is that our judges, like our politicians, are extraordinarily well paid compared to their overseas counterparts. I mean, the Chief Justice of the US Supreme Court is paid $286,700, which even converting to New Zealand dollars is less than our Chief Justice. And a High Court judge in the UK is paid less than £200,000 a year, less than a High Court justice in this country. But then the President of the United States has a salary of just $400,000 US a year. Our Prime Minister gets 479000 I mean, is our PM's position worth more in New Zealand dollars than what it takes to run the US in US dollars? Mind you, our PM isn't getting payoffs from Ukraine, is he? Uh, I don't begrudge what judges get paid in this country. They are reputedly the cream of the legal profession, and some of them have given up very lucrative private practices to go to the bench. But they are public servants paid from the public purse. Surely it's not too much to tell us what their full salary package is, is it? You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The first report on the Maori Health Authority, or Te Aka Fai Order, is out and it's damning. Here are just a few quotes from the report. It was commissioned by the Minister and Associate Minister of Health, delivered in May, but released 
uh, late last Friday. And you can understand why it was delivered late on a Friday. I quote from the report. Overall, while Te Aka Fai Order has been successful in achieving a number of important milestones in this early period development, its inability to put in place the necessary level of capability and capacity to progress its key functions has hampered performance. Discretionary choices made by the board and or executive have occasionally detracted from Te Order's delivery of its core functions. A key example raised in interviews related to staff transfers from Te Fata Order to Te Order, an agreed process as part of building Te Order, whereby the Te Order prime focus was on acquiring Maori personnel and teams instead of strategic targeting core capability requirements and staff with the necessary skills and experience to deliver these. In other words, they gave a Maori person a job even if they were not the best qualified to do it. The report continues, as part of this high-level assessment, we tried to source a board-approved implementation plan that outlined the year one priorities for Te Akafai Order and set out the detail on how these will be planned, delivered, managed and monitored with regards to activities, timeframes, resources, accountabilities and performance. A living planning document that would guide strategic prioritisation, decision-making and trade-offs throughout the year. There appears to be no such overarching plan, unquote. So, how could you sum up the first year of the Māori Health Authority? Well, based on this report, you could say it's been shambolic, disorganised and racked by nepotism and racism. The chair of the board, by the way, is Nanaya Mahuta's sister. The good news is that if National and ACT are elected on the 14th of October, this outfit is gone by Christmas. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. More of your feedback, which has come into inbox at Reality Check Radio. This from Bronwyn, Bronwyn Kerr. She writes, Dear Peter, I've just listened to the playback of your interview with Julian Batchelor. It seemed unnecessarily combative to me. I would strongly recommend you actually go to one of his meetings, even if you have to fly to another town to do so. Failing that, you can listen to his presentation on his website or on YouTube, but you really need to experience the unreasoning blind madness of the protesters outside to see what we are up against. They delayed the start of the meeting I went to by 25 minutes. They banged the walls outside at intervals throughout. They turned the power to the building off and they had a couple of people they had smuggled into the meeting who waited until separate times to disrupt and argue. Julian's presentation is logical and of benefit to all New Zealanders if they would only listen. 
They are brainwashed, just like the Covidians. Your suggestion in the interview that we need to sit down and talk and reason with the other side is a completely impossible one once you see and experience the blind cult-like behaviour of the people who follow him around to protest outside his meetings. Thank you, Bronman. I understand completely where you are coming from. I thank you for your correspondence. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057, or you can find us on Facebook. We love to hear from you here at RCR. Now, I used to know Imran Khan a bit, well, in the way that cricket media know and occasionally socialise uh, with the players they're broadcasting about. My friend John Parker, with whom I did cricket commentaries 30 years ago, flattered with the man he called Emmy when they played at Worcestershire in English county cricket. Yes, Imran was a little aloof, but then he was a Pashtun, a member of an historically high-class tribe from up in the Punjab. My recollection of Imran Khan was of a man with great charisma and presence based on his physical appearance. He was tall and handsome and dashing, and he was well-schooled in the ways of the West because he spent so much time in Western society, such as at Oxford University. He returned to his homeland after extraordinary international sporting success and therefore had a great base from which to launch a successful political career, culminating in him becoming Prime Minister in 2018 in Pakistan and staying in the job for nearly four years. But the sad history of Pakistan since partition from India and the establishment of the country in 1947 has been of corruption and of violence. The military and hardline Islamists ensure nobody becomes too popular or runs the country for too long. More than once, Imran Khan has suggested in interviews that he could be assassinated, like one of his predecessors, Benazir Bhutto, was. He was actually shot at last year and was injured in the leg. But now he's been jailed for three years for so-called corruption, uh, for allegedly selling a couple of watches he was given when he was the Prime Minister. The charges, of course, are trumped up, but that is Pakistan. Politicians have been trying to bring some democratic order to the country for 75 years. Nobody has ever really succeeded. Imran Khan had as good a chance as any, but not even the hero worship that he maintained from his cricket days could save him from the clutches of the powerful military. Can he get out of jail and revive his political career? History would say no. The military who helped put him in power have now decided he's not their man anymore but he's appealed via video for public support saying, don't sit and hide in your homes. The stories about him are banned now in the Pakistan media. His party, the PTI, has seen former associates leave. Pakistan might have a current government, but Imran Khan's imprisonment reminds us where the real power in the country lies, and it's with the military. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Well, coming up about five o'clock this afternoon, the All Black team for the World Cup is named. The All Black squad this year has involved 37 players, but only 33 are allowed to go to the World Cup, so there's going to be at least four disappointed players when the team is named in an hour or so. Uh, quite a bit depends on how bad a couple of injuries are, but I think 
you take it for red that while Brody Retallick will go, despite him not being able to play for the next six weeks, the Crusaders midfielder Braden Enor won't be in the squad. I saw him walk off the park in Dunedin on Saturday afternoon injured, and he threw his mouth guard to the ground in disgust and disappointment. I think he knew then he wouldn't be ready in time for the World Cup. And in fact, he hadn't played that well during the match anyway. I think the others in the current squad who will miss out today are all Crusaders players. Is that ironic or coincidental? After all, the Crusaders dominate New Zealand super rugby. The big prop to Mighty Williams, uh, the outside backs, Lester Fyinganuku and Dallas McLeod. Uh, they'll be gutted, but let's be honest, they haven't made the most of the limited opportunities they've had this year. The good thing for Williams and McLeod is that next year Scott Robertson takes over running the All Blacks after the impression those players have made under Robertson at the Crusaders. I think their omission from this year's All Blacks will only be a short-term thing. They will be back. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company this afternoon. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on RCR. I'm back again on Wednesday. Your correspondence is most welcome, though. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, uh, via text at 2057, or find us on Facebook. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.